Would you open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. We were able to cover the first 13 verses of this chapter last Sunday. And uh, we've actually spent some time, uh, for those who were in the uh, adult Sunday school class this morning, we spent some time studying these verses already. Uh, but it's going to be good to read them further and to look into them uh, deeply again, and just to rejoice in the coming of our Savior into the world as a man. Hear the word of the Lord. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we depend upon you. We come into your presence, in your word, and we're expecting fully to hear you speak to us. But we cannot hear on our own. And certainly, Father, we can't see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ unless you give us these eyes to see, unless you open and enlighten the eyes of our hearts. And I pray, Father, that you would be pleased and gracious to do that for us today, to see your glory. And I pray, Father, that we would not have some kind of vision of your glory and dare turn away. I pray, Father, that our hearts would truly be captivated by the beauty of your glory shining in Christ. We thank you, Father, for your grace and your promises, which give us full confidence in coming to you despite our sinfulness, despite our failures even of this very day, the failures of our love and not giving to you the worship that you are worthy of, yet your grace, your promises, and the death of your Son in our place upon the cross gives us all confidence now. We pray in his name. In the name of our living Savior, that you would come to us and help us. Amen. I want to ask you this morning uh, to be honest in your own heart and in your own thoughts uh, about this question. Can you say truly that your heart is captivated by the glory of God in the face of Jesus? In Psalm 96, it says, All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. In that prayer, that song to the Lord, do you find an echo of that? In your own heart? Does your heart cry out in agreement? Yes, splendor and majesty are found in Him. 
He is where the true beauty and the true glory are found. Is your heart captivated by this glory? In Isaiah 28, we have this promise that in that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty, another word for crown, to the remnant of his people. He will be glory and he will be beauty to his people. We're familiar with this term glory from the scriptures. It's often attached to beauty and to majesty and to splendor. It's not simply revealing to us certain attributes of God so that we can understand them in some intellectual sense. We have been given the glory of God that we might behold the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of the Lord in the face of Jesus. And this is why Jesus came. Does your heart genuinely, honestly say nothing in this world compares to the beauty of my Lord? Are you captivated by Christ? I'm glad if you are convinced that Jesus existed. But that's not enough. Not enough to bring God true glory and not enough for the good of your soul. In fact, if you are only convinced of Jesus' existence, that's not going to do your soul an an ounce of eternal good. I am glad, in a sense, if you find Jesus to be useful, and I'll explain what I mean by that as we go, but if you only find Jesus useful, that's not nearly enough to give Jesus the glory that is due him. It's not enough to find that he's actual, and it's not enough to find that he's useful to be personally uh, convinced of his existence and to be uh, to find him personally convenient, none of that is enough. If you aren't captivated by the sight of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus, I dare say that either you see him very dimly or you have not seen him at all. Why did Jesus come? Why did Christ come? He came to reveal to us the glory of God. And it's him that we find the fullness. Let me, uh, let me explain uh, by way of an illustration of what, what I mean that it's not enough to find him personally convincing or even personally convenient. I'm a sucker for the movie Anne of Green Gables. And I don't know if you know this movie or not. Uh, being Americans, uh, you might not. If I was speaking to a room full of Canadians, everybody would know exactly what I was talking about. And, and younger me would be absolutely appalled if he could have heard present me admitting in front of a group of people that I am a sucker for this movie. Um, in the early 1900s, Lucy Maud Montgomery wrote this, this novel, a series of novels actually, about this young orphan girl by the name of Anne Shirley, who was adopted by an elderly brother and sister, who uh, neither of whom had ever married, they had inherited the, the, the farm of their parents. Now in their elderly years, they were looking to have uh, a boy for themselves who could help them on the farm. So um, Matthew Cuthbert goes to the train station to pick up this boy, and he finds this little orphan girl there. And so I, I love this story because it's a period piece, and I love, 
I love history and I love these period pieces, but it's not like an epic history, you know, on the scale that they make movies these days. I love it because it's quaint. It's, uh, I love it for its simplicity, for the, the beauty of these pastoral Prince Edward Island scenes in Canada. Um, and I love it for the nostalgia of it because they made these movies in 1985 and 1987, uh, based on the books. And, um, Every Christmas time, my family would gather around the TV and we would watch Anne of Green Gables. And my dad and my brother and I would not stop for the hours of these movies making fun and cracking jokes. And my sister the whole time was, be quiet, I'm trying to watch this movie. I feel very bad because we were terrible at the time. But now, to watch these with my girls, it has this very strong emotional tug on me just for the nostalgia of it because it, it brings me back home and to my family and, and so on. And so it has this, I'm a sucker for the movie. Anyway, there, there's a scene early on in the movie when Matthew Cuthbert, the elderly brother, goes down to the train station to pick up the little boy, finds it's this, this orphan girl, but he can't leave her there for the night. So she gets into the carriage with him and they, they make their way back to home green gables they wind their way through the woods along the the seashore there on prince edward island a beautiful scene there in this in the movie and then they come to this grove of apple trees which at the time of year are just in full bloom with these brilliant white blossoms and anne she's very dreamy and imaginative and she just gasps and she says to mr cuthbert she says um, what is this place? He says, oh, this, they call this place the Avenue. Pretty, isn't it? She says, the Avenue? There's no meaning in a name like that. This place shouldn't be called the Avenue. It should be called the White Way of Delight. Very dreamy. Imagine if there was at the, the head of this grove a plaque that said, this is a place. It really is a place. We hope that you are convinced of its existence. And you would look at this and think, what is the point of this plaque? You know, of course I'm convinced of its existence, but it's, 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 its purpose is not to convince me that it exists. What, what person or what place has ever been where its purpose was to convince you that it exists? You don't walk up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and say, okay, now I believe it. Yep, it exists. It has a greater purpose for, for, for us than its mere existence, the proof of its existence. Why is it that so many people are satisfied in their minds and hearts to think I'm giving God his due by believing in his existence? That's not what faith is. That's not why Jesus came to convince us that God is or convince us that he, the son of God, actually exists. And yet there are all kinds of people who say, yeah, of course I believe I believe that Jesus was. I believe he is the son of God. I believe that he died and that he rose for sinners. I believe that. I believe. 
But really, all they really believe are the bare bones facts of his existence. And that's not why Jesus came. And to be convinced of his historicity does not give him the due that he is worthy of. Then again, you know, Anne Shirley is offended for this grove because people just call it the avenue, like it's convenient, personally convenient. And that is not doing this place justice. There's no meaning, she says, in a name like that. We should call it the white way of delight. And so many people, in their response to Jesus, merely find him personally convenient, useful. Like, oh, what a great deal I have because I can go through Jesus to heaven and I have a way out of hell without Jesus. I'd be in hell, so this is, this is tremendously useful for me. But Jesus is not a means to another end. Like when you think of something being a convenience, you think, okay, because I have this, I can get there. Or because I have this thing, I can also have that thing. You know, because I have uh, a dishwasher, it's more convenient to be able to clean up the kitchen or whatever. We know how what a convenience is. And it's a means to an end. It's not the end itself. It's not the destination. But Jesus is all in all. He is the end. He is the destination. That's why he said, I am. That's why he said, come to me. It is not enough to merely find Jesus useful or convenient or to be convinced of his existence. He came that we might in him see the glory of God, that our hearts would be captivated, and being captivated, we would come, and having come, we would be more captivated. That's why Jesus has come for us. You might say Jesus came that we would have eternal life. Eddie prayed that way before the offering. We have the promise of eternal life in Christ. What is eternal life? What is it? Jesus said, he defined it, he described it. In in John 17, it is to know God. It is to know him, to draw near to him, to come to him, and to have communion with him. Actual relationship with him. It might sound cliche, personal relationship with the Lord, but that is what it is. That's what we have in Christ. We have personal, living, everlasting relationship with God. And it begins now. We're not simply waiting for that day for our eternal life to begin because of Christ. Because we have been born again from above by the Spirit who indwells us, we have this gift Now, and it's why Jesus came. He came to reveal the glory of God, to captivate our hearts with his beauty so that we would come to him and know him. So let's go over these verses. I want to read verse 14 again. The word became flesh, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 18, these will be the two verses we concentrate on. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. I just want to say it again about this 
historical conviction that he existed or finding him convenient. You know, every, every year at Christmas time, at least in recent memory, there is an attack against Jesus that goes viral. And the more that we are tuned into social media, the more we're going to become aware of these things. You don't actually have to tune into National Geographic or the History Channel of Discovery or what have you to learn of the attack on Jesus, the latest thing. Well, the latest attack against Jesus that went viral was to question, actually question, his existence historically. That is ridiculous. I don't mean to mock the individual, but it it really is foolish. It is stupid. Genuinely stupid. Now, I would assume that just about, I'm assuming that everyone here believes in the historical existence of Jesus. If you do, great, but don't give yourself a pat on the back. Because again, it is not enough. You see, if you believe in the truth of Jesus, his existence, you might bow the knee. You might bow the knee. But if you don't also believe in the worth of Christ, if your heart is not captivated by his glory, you will not adore this Christ. And that's what he is due. That's what he's due. Again, it's not enough to find him convenient. Those who have the eyes of their hearts open to know his glory, to see him, are enthralled. They're captivated by what they see. Because they know that, to quote from Mark Jones, who recently wrote, he said, in need of nothing, he gave up his rights and privileges in order to save those who have nothing so that they might attain all that he surrendered. And that is captivating. Such love for sinners such as me. Let's talk about the incarnation. And I I hope that you get a a vision of the beauty of the glory of Christ and you're captivated deeper and, and all over again. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God sharing his Father's divine nature as his own from eternity so that there never was a time when Jesus was not and there never was a time when Jesus was not divine. And then at the right time, the appointed time, in due time, he who has eternally had the divine nature added to himself a human nature so that right Now and forevermore, Jesus has a human soul, a human mind, and a human body without any subtraction from the divine nature and without any corruption to it. That's what the incarnation means. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now we need to be very careful about our language 
so that what we say reflects the reality and, and the biblical meaning. But I want to draw out some of the implications of the incarnation of the Son of God. He created his own mother. And then at the right time, God sent his Son. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, this human nature was created. He was conceived within the very woman that he created. A single living cell. The time went by and he became a human embryo. Surrounded by the placenta that protected him and provided for him throughout Mary's pregnancy. What does it mean for these nine months pre-birth that this person is fully human and fully divine? It means that according to his divine nature, he sustains Mary's life. And according to his human nature, she sustains his. It means that the heavens cannot contain him and that her uterus did. What about the implications for his infancy? That he is fully divine and fully human both. And never is there, never is there a time, never is there a time that Jesus is anything less than human and anything less, any less divine. So in his infancy, according to his human nature, he was cradled in his mother's arms. And all of creation is cradled in his, the everlasting arms. To borrow from Mark Jones again in his book, Knowing Christ, Jesus drank from his mother's breasts and Jesus provided his mother with the milk to feed him. This is what our God has done. How can we make sense of this? I'm not, I'm not saying we can make sense of it in the, in the way that we would solve it or understand it perfectly exhaustively. But to say that it is great mystery does not mean that it is a contradiction. This is why we call the incarnation, as Ryan mentioned in Sunday school, the miracle of miracles. This is the wonder of wonders that this person is God and man, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Finally, can be seen. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as, pleased, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Why has he come? He came to make God known to us. This is the gift of eternal life. We say, I thought eternal life meant it was an endless life, like a quantity. Yeah, it's that. It's not less than that, but it's so much more than that. It is not so much endless days, but 
the endless God for endless days. It's not so much life to no end, but the infinite God to no end. Do you know him? In your life, in your thoughts about him, in your hearing him, if you don't find him beautiful, I dare say you have not yet seen his glory. But you may. If this is the first, the initial stirring of finding Jesus compelling, the first realization that he is beautiful, that you want him, that you find a stirring of longing within your heart, don't hold back, come to Christ. Don't put it off. Today is the day of salvation. Give him all your faith. I want to... um, I want to show you a little bit more with a biblical illustration, the beauty of Jesus. Would you turn back while I speak to Genesis 28? Many, many hundreds of years before Jesus was born, he appeared to Jacob in a place called Luz. Jacob was on the run. He had deceived his brother, kind of cheated him a couple of times, taken advantage of him at least. And he was on the run, fearing for his life, headed to his uncle Laban's house. And he stopped in a place called Luz for a night's rest. You remember? I I hope you do. How he took the, the rock for his pillow on this one night, and then he went to sleep. And that night, Jesus appeared to him in a dream. It says in uh, Genesis 28, beginning in verse 12, I hope that I have that written down right, It says, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder, think staircase, set up, uh, set upon the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. The God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And then the Lord proceeds to give to Jacob the the covenant promises that were given to his grandfather, Abraham, and his father, Isaac, prior land, offspring. And, And offspring is the number of the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And through those descendants, blessing to all the families of the earth. It says, then Jacob awoke from his sleep. Now I'm reading in verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And then I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Notice what Jacob did not say. He did not say, okay, now I am convinced God does actually exist. If he had said that, he would have missed the entire point of what God was giving to him in this revelation. Nor did he say, well, this is convenient. You know, because normally Esau, being older than me, would have got the the covenant promises himself, but now I got him. What a sweet deal. This is very convenient. He doesn't say that. He is rather captivated. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God in this vision of the staircase to heaven upon which the angels of God ascend and descend, the Lord standing at the head of it. 
back to John chapter 1, if you would. Toward the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 43 or so, I'm going to summarize most of this. So centuries later, the Apostle John is telling us about Jesus' first interaction with one of his first disciples, Nathaniel. Nathaniel has a friend named Philip. Jesus has called Philip to himself, and, and Philip has immediately gone to Nathaniel and said, guess what? We have found him. The one whom the scriptures, the prophets have foretold. We have found him. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And I think Nathaniel's been getting pretty excited. <laughs> we found him what? Jesus of where? you got to be kidding me. Of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He says in verse 46, Philip says, come and see. When Jesus sees Nathanael coming toward him, Jesus reveals that he already knows Nathanael, knows all about him, has seen him, even though he has not actually ever been with him. And Nathanael rightly is awestruck at this. And look at what he says um, in verse 49. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And then Jesus says that what Nathanael has just seen of Jesus is so very little compared to what he's going to see. Look at the end of verse 50. He says, you will see greater thing, things than these. And he said to him, verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Do you get yourself what Jacob saw? And do you understand what he said? It's important. When he saw this vision of God, the promise, the staircase from heaven to earth, angels of God ascending and descending, he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gateway to heaven. Why does Jesus say what he does in, in chapter 1 of John? Because of what Jacob concluded. Now Jesus is saying, I am the awesome place. I am the house of God. I am the glory. And I am the gateway to heaven. That's what he means when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Listen, everyone, young people in particular, if you can hear that Jesus is the glory of God revealed in the fullness of God's majesty and splendor and beauty, and you think about something else, about anything else, if you are bored, if you find Jesus dry, you should examine your heart and you should pray and say, Lord, Open my eyes that I might see. That I might see and be captivated by the beauty of God in Jesus. I want to beg you, 
as we come to a close in 2015, and we have 2016 knocking on our door, please make a plan that you are going to spend 2016 reading, digging, meditating upon the Word of God. You are going to make this Word your own. You're not going to solely depend on me to feed it to you. You are going to make it your own. You are going to learn, if you haven't already learned, if you've learned already, you're going to get further grounded in the arc of this story and how this narrative, this word of God, this revelation is unified and it climaxes in the person of Jesus. You are going to yourself Open the lid on the treasure and you're going to dig in your hands and you're going to sift that that treasure through your fingers yourself because you're not going to just let me stand up here on here and tell you what I have seen and what I have found when I have lifted the lid on the treasure. Because then how do you ever know that you are actually personally captivated if you never come to the treasure yourself to open the lid and to sift the fingers of your mind through this treasure. So 2016 is quickly approaching on our church Facebook page. Uh, shortly, within a week or so, I've posted this before. I will give you a link to probably several Bible reading plans for the year. Find the one. If you don't have a plan already, you might have a plan. If you don't, find the one that suits you and implement it. And if you fall behind, as I almost guarantee you will fall, fall behind, don't worry about it. I wouldn't even say, catch up, hurry, you're going to fall behind. Just keep on going. According to the plan, you might be a week, a month behind, you might be three months behind at the end of the year. That's okay. Keep on going. Keep on reading. Keep on beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ for yourself. Because He came so that you might see. He came so that you would know the glory of God in Him. One uh, final analogy to close. I'm pulling this from the same book I've mentioned before. Uh, The guy's name escapes me now. But he was quoting from the the Puritan, Samuel Rutherford. And uh, I'm not going to quote this. I'm just going to kind of summarize it and paraphrase it. I want you to imagine the beauty of paradise. Okay? Whatever you imagine is paradise, fix the beauty of that paradise in your mind. And then, I want you to imagine the beauty of that paradise times 10,000. 10,000 paradises. All the trees, all the smells, the colors, the, the tastes of that paradise... 10,000 paradises. And it cannot compare with the beauty of the glory of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you would compare the beauty of 10,000 paradises to Jesus, it would be like, maybe, like this. One drop of water to all the water in all the oceans in all the seas and lakes and rivers 
on 10,000 earths. His beauty is infinite. You will never get to the bottom. But don't you ever dare think or decide that you're not going to dive in. You must. That's why Jesus came. Let's pray. Father, I pray, I pray that you would do that work that you alone can do. Because naturally, Father, our hearts are hard. They're calloused. And there's darkness within us. And that darkness has us overwhelmed, overcome. We are conquered from the time we are born. But no darkness can overcome the light of life in Jesus. And so I pray, Father, that even if there is a heart here that has known nothing but darkness, all its life, I pray that the light of Jesus Christ would pierce and scatter that darkness away. And that heart would wake up and realize that there is no beauty There is no desire that compares with the beauty and the desirability of Jesus Christ, your Son. By your Spirit, according to your grace and mercy, would you please accomplish that in all of our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.